This is the APS China Monthly, August 2022. The Essay Why Do We Never Learn? by Wong Kok Hoi Experiences of a Fund Manager The Japanese economic miracle hit its zenith in 1989 before collapsing under the weight of investor hubris, loose lending standards, excessive risk-taking, and central bank recklessness. A period of sustained economic prosperity and strong corporate profits led to a buoyant property market, a spirited stock market, and countless crazy stuff. We go back in time to that go-go era, in what seemed to be the land of the bracket forever, close bracket, rising sun. Not for good old nostalgia, but to distill the lessons from probably the biggest, craziest bubble in modern times. Hopefully, it can help us sidestep today's bubbles and guide us to safer spots. By the late 1980s, even individual foreign investors as far away as Switzerland wanted a piece of the action in the frenzied Japanese stock market. Even cab drivers in Geneva were punting Japanese warrants. During a business trip to Geneva, once the cab driver learned that his passenger was a fund manager from Tokyo, the cabbie praised endlessly the land of the rising sun, the land of Toyotas, JVCs, Nissans and Sonys. He then asked his fare for his view on the warrant of a small Japanese diesel engine manufacturer that he had just bought. At that time, the driver must have made good money punting warrants but might have had to sell his cab in the subsequent crash to zero. The bull stock market made Nomura Securities the most profitable financial institution in the world in 1986. In 1988, a fund manager was invited by his broker to a $10,000 evening. Brokers at that time made so much money that extravagance was not even worth a thought, as it was not possible to even spend 10% of the budget on delectable Kobe beef and lobsters. Club hopping in Ginza was the only creative way to meet the budget. The broker's order from his boss was to meet the budget by hook or by crook. By midnight, intoxicated brokers, fund managers, businessmen and developers would have outnumbered the cabs, so hostesses had to flash 10,000 yen notes, about 100 US dollars, at cabbies as tips to send their customer home. Beyond the Ginza clubs were other crazy clubs, golf clubs. Memberships were going for 500,000 US dollars to 1.5 million US dollars for courses 90 minutes drive from Tokyo. For 250,000 US dollars, you can secure the privilege of driving 2.5 hours each way to play 18 holes. Mind you, that was 35 years ago. The craziness of that time did not stop at golf membership prices. Once, the fund manager had to get up at 1.30am for a golf game. He had to pick up his boss at 2.30am for his bank's golf tournament for over 30 senior managers. To make the tea time at 7am, his boss even had to rent a room in the city for the night, for he would otherwise have to endure a 5-hour drive from his home in Yokohama.
the previous evening, he had had a duty to accompany his boss for dinner and drinks till midnight. The three and a half hours planned for the drive was the provision made just in case there would be traffic jams. Few had questioned the silly things one would go through for an 18-hole golf game in golf-crazy Japan at that time. Banks joined in the party, offering 80% loan-to-valuation ratios. The 15 million golfers were swinging their golf clubs on weekends and speculating on weekdays which new club membership will catch the fancy of golfers and skyrocket, which is analogous to hedge funds chasing tech startups seen in recent years. Investment managers could not resist the addictive sports and membership frenzy. Many of the fund manager's colleagues tried to convince him of the quote, sure bet, unquote, on memberships, on the argument that land supply could not be increased. For declining to join the bandwagon, he, though educated in Japan and speaks the language, was teased for not having appreciated enough the uniqueness of the new successful Japan, which was rapidly catching up to the US. Bracket, after Ezra Vogel's book, quote, Japan as number one, unquote, close bracket. During those crazy years, one could even trade 400 golf memberships like stocks in the Japan Golf Exchange, a stone's throw away from his office. Believe it or not, there was even a Nikkei Golf Index compiled for the 200 billion US dollar golf membership market. Naturally, corporate Japan decided that it must also have a piece of the action in the stock market. The leading argument in favor of Japanese stocks at that time went like this. Japan's inexorable economic success and ample liquidity must lead to an enduring bull market. Japanese companies were persuaded by the proponents of, quote, Zytec, unquote, which was, quote, using financial engineering expertise, unquote, to make no-brainer Zytec profits. Zytec is a portmanteau of the Japanese word for financial dealings, quote, Zaimu, unquote, and engineering. Every other list call took out bank loans at 3% to 5% per annum to punt stocks, and for a time, double-digit annualized returns looked like child's play compared with the arduous business of manufacturing. As their portfolios grew, many started to outsource the investment function from their finance departments to professional fund managers, but with bigger stakes this time. And that is how this portfolio manager met the 70-something chairman of a Japanese steel company. Over an extravagant lunch to thank the PM for a job well done over the past year, the veteran corporate chieftain confidently predicted that Japan would become the largest economy in the world. Predictions of a rosier Japan increased each time the Nikkei 225 index hit a new high. All this crazy stuff were fueled by the Bank of Japan's monetary policy of ample cheap capital, margin financing for speculative trading in stocks, Zytec investments, cheap mortgages, new golf course projects spouting all over the country, 
and marquee overseas real estate icon purchases like the Rockefeller Center with its Radio City Music Hall and hotels in the golf paradise that is Palm Springs. Banks vigorously grew their mortgage portfolio by lending on thin spreads, just like the US subprime market two decades later, on what was believed to be a no-brainer, cannot possibly lose business. Loan officers would convince the rare skeptic to take a loan that even exceeded the property valuation, convinced that the land of rising property prices could only see higher prices. At the peak of Japan's property bubble, the 1.15 square kilometer Imperial Palace was worth as much as the entire state of California. Believe it or not, at that time, neither the policymakers, including the Bank of Japan, nor the academia nor corporate Japan, had warned that the real estate meltdown would sink the land of the rising sun. When Japan's property and stock market bubble started to unravel in 1990, the Japanese government, despite its utmost efforts, failed to tame the beastly 900-pound gorilla. Despite multiple interest rate cuts in the early 1990s, the entire nation failed to recover from this implosion. Japan's real estate market remains moribund after 30 years of deflation. Sellers had offered to pay buyers of golf memberships because they could no longer afford to pay the monthly membership fees and so on. Every major bank had to be bailed out and merged. I am that fund manager you have just been reading about. This experience taught me many things about bubbles, the hubris and irrationality of policymakers, and the psyche and behavior of investors in exuberant times. With the benefit of hindsight, the Bank of Japan, top corporate honchos, and investors could have avoided the calamity if they had learned from history and not made such apparently obvious mistakes. Bubbles, bubbles. Besides the Japan crisis, I had also experienced the Asian financial crisis of 1997, America's TMT bubble in 2000, and the subprime mortgage crisis and crash of 2008. Are there any other teaching moments from history? Many. A famous one is the tulip mania in Holland in 1636-1637, where tulip cost more than an apartment in fashionable Amsterdam. A less famous but bigger bubble is the Mississippi bubble in France that popped in 1720. Besides bubbles, another danger is overheated money printing presses and runaway inflation. Believe it or not, the German mark after World War I was so worthless that the price of a loaf of bread rose from 250 marks in January 1923 to 200,000 million marks 10 months later. During that time, workers were paid twice a day because by lunchtime, the wage you received in the morning could barely buy you anything. Common Characteristics of Bubbles I've always been baffled by the silliness of investors. What is more confounding is that professional investors do not seem to have learned the lessons from history. What is wrong with us? We are reasonably educated, 
reasonably trained in fundamental analysis and reasonably smart. Yet as a group, we have this tendency to behave like lemmings once every decade. Why? This question defied logic until behavioral finance professors posited the thesis that it is our flawed DNA that is the cause. They posited that combining integrated numbers offered Homo sapiens in millennium's past the best chance of survival when confronting a threat, whether beasts or other humans. They argued that crowding together had provided comfort and increased the odds of survival. In investments, however, crowding creates bubbles and it is a recipe for disaster one day. If true, then fighting our DNA would seem to be a critical attribute to resist getting sucked into bubbles. At the risk of oversimplification, we can broadly group the contributory factors of bubble formation into four categories. 1. Hubris aplenty from both professionals and the uninitiated. The cab driver in Geneva and fund manager in Nihonbashi, Japan alike extrapolated current good times into near infinity with reckless abandon. Alternating between euphoria as their holdings hit fresh highs and panic as their fear of missing out bracket, FOMO, close bracket, took over, fast decisions trumped careful deliberation. In recent years, new investing styles such as meme investing Disruptive technology investing, FANG investing, and cryptocurrency investing, etc., have captured the imagination and fascination of investors. This, quote, investment zeitgeist, unquote, had until recently become so mainstream and entrenched that it was accepted as the new normal. As a result, Traditional fundamental analysis was relegated to the nursing home for the oldies. As with everything in life, success breeds greed and hubris. Investors, having relished much success in crowded asset classes or sectors or genre stocks, were so confident that even if crashes were to occur, they absolutely believed they would be the one of the first to bail out as they would delude themselves into believing that they are the new masters of their investing style and asset class. In short, investors will develop this cognitive dissonance, believing they are the geniuses in the, quote, greater fool theory, unquote. Interestingly, bulls in frenzied markets suffer from the same cognitive dissonance as bipolar patients during their bouts of highs. If not, how can we explain the behavior of investors in cryptocurrencies? 2. Ample cheap capital, with banks charging razor-thin spreads and demanding minimal collateral, fueling more speculation in financial markets. Liquidity is the indispensable fuel for bubbles, and sadly, it is often created by ill-disciplined and ebullient central bankers. Today, I have an eerie feeling the U.S. is in a perfect position to repeat history. 3. Central bankers, relying on a money-printing machine to tackle every major economic problem, leading to abundant cheap capital, 
with a substantial portion of it flooding into financial markets. This is so true in the last two and a half years of the pandemic. The Fed's balance sheet alone, for instance, has ballooned to $9 trillion US dollars. As psychologist Abraham Maslow wrote, quote, I suppose it is tempting, if the only tool you have is a hammer, to treat everything as if it were a nail, unquote. Four, retail investors are often the last group to push prices to stratospheric levels as they lack the experience and analytical skills and usually cannot discern the difference between investing and speculation. China's bubbles, the housing market. China's phenomenal economic success, capital controls, and a high household savings rate of over 30%, six times that of the European Union and four times of America's in 2019, had fueled the Chinese property market's bull run for two decades, with nary a meaningful speed bump. Over a quarter of bank loans in the world's second largest economy are related to property. On top of bank loans, developers issued onshore and offshore bonds, as well as excess funding via trust loans and wealth management products. The People's Bank of China's major worry is the bank loans to developers rather than the mortgages. The PBOC for years had watched with concern the one-way property market. The affordability ratio of home prices to income has skyrocketed to double-digit figures in the cities. Alive to the risk of a Japan-style systemic crisis if home prices were to crash, the PBOC, without any warning, issued the draconian, quote, three red lines, unquote, policy in the autumn of 2020. Almost immediately, banks were forced to reduce their exposure to the developers and developers were compelled to reduce their leverage. China's housing market spiraled into its biggest slump. The debt woes of China's number one developer, Evergrande, along with that of scores of smaller players, has made headlines almost every single day since. For many years, bankers and home buyers all believed that housing prices would have to continuously rise despite anti-speculative measures because of rapidly rising wealth, a lack of investment products, capital controls, etc., just like Japan. Fortunately for China, the PBOC took a different view and took drastic action in drawing the three red lines, busting that myth. Kudos to the PBOC for its bonus at a delicate time two years ago to defuse a time bomb which might have blown up the entire banking system one day if tough actions were not taken. That said, not all is doom and gloom as the world's second largest economy has been gently easing monetary policy from late last year. The PBOC can now afford to ease as it had tightened before things got out of hand. New home transactions grew 8.8% in May from the previous month in the 17 major Chinese cities that the China Index Academy monitors. The property market has bottomed in the short term, with a clear month-on-month -month rise 
in sales in June. Said Yu Liang, chairman of the nation's number two developer, China Vanke. So he cautioned the recovery will be slow and mild. He saw some recovery in the secondary housing market in June, with 50% of first and second tier cities reporting higher asking prices. Early July sales dipped again though. IPOs Supported by ample liquidity in China and Wall Street, China IPOs showed signs of euphoria as prices would go berserk on their debut. It was common in China that IPOs would go limit up for multiple sessions and eventually start trading at 200% to 500% of IPO prices. Across the Pacific Ocean, Chinese companies' American depository receipts bracket ADRs close bracket regardless of their profitability or management integrity were snatched up on Wall Street. Luckin Coffee and Didi are just two well-known examples. Miss Fresh, a grocery e-commerce company, deserves a mention. Debuting only a year ago at 13 US dollars, it is now trading at just 38 cents. Firms from China comprised half of the 36 foreign listings in the US during the first quarter of 2021, which was the busiest quarter for overall US initial public offerings since 2000, according to consulting firm EY. Despite the coronavirus pandemic and strained Sino-US relations, the IPO game is probably over. China Tech, bracket, or Internet, close bracket. Until just five quarters ago, China Internet companies had been a place to crowd for comfort and gravity-defying returns. Without warning, gravity started to reassert itself when deteriorating fundamentals coincided with the cancellation of the much-hyped IPO of Ant Financial. Then, the sector has been beleaguered by a series of regulatory crackdowns, such as investigations into anti-competitive practices, ill-treatment and exploitation of workers, and so on and so forth. At about the same time, the US SEC legislated the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act, bracket, HFCAA, close bracket, which demanded access to and inspection of audit notes for US-listed foreign companies. As most Chinese internet companies are listed in the US as ADRs, investment sentiment towards the sector quickly turned cautious. On top of that, the dubious legal and business structures of ADRs added to investor worries. Bulls have argued in Q2 that the regulatory crackdown is largely over, and therefore the stocks are primed for another bull run. Is that so? Let's look for the evidence. The Wall Street Journal reported as recently as July 14th that senior executives of Alibaba have been called up for investigations of serious data breaches. Another big fine seems inevitable. Didi was fined 1.2 billion US dollars 
on 21st July for multiple data breaches. Tencent, the world's largest video game company, failed to obtain approval for any of its new games in the last two rounds. In fact, China's draft amendments to its anti-monopoly law have yet to be promulgated. The draft law on selling drugs and dishing out medical advice on internet platforms is only at the start of the consultation process and so on. Where then is the evidence that the regulatory crackdown is over and that it is water under the bridge? Gary Gensler, chairman of the US SEC, warned once again in July that the latest discussions with China's CSRC had not made much progress, as were the past rounds of negotiations. He added the HFCAA is already legislated, so there is no flexibility at its end. Why are auditor notes such a thorny issue? Because they contain supplier information, customer information, product information, affiliate and subsidiary information, staff information, etc. That said, the SEC has legitimacy in demanding ADR companies to disclose more information. The issue is how much. In my view, a resolution is a quote, bridge too far, unquote. Because what the US is asking for is tantamount to asking a famous chef for his secret recipe. Some ordinary companies may not have a secret sauce and therefore it is not a big deal to show their books. But many companies do. What about national security issues? Therefore, the likelihood is high that the SEC will proceed with several delistings as soon as from 2023. TT will not be the first and is surely not the last. Alibaba announced on July 26 that it will move its primary listing to Hong Kong, a harbinger of more such moves to come. As China today is no longer as desperate for Wall Street capital as a decade or two ago, it is difficult to expect China to make a big concession here. Besides, delisting hurts more US investors than China investors, as most ADRs are majority owned by the former. The argument that a softening economy would coerce regulators to cast aside their regulations to allow internet companies to do what they did in the past is a weak one in China. It is a widely held belief to this day that Alibaba's stock price crash of 60% was caused primarily by the regulatory crackdown. Is this belief correct? Elsewhere, the share price declines of e-commerce titans Shopify and SEA were even more drastic, plunging 80% from their recent peaks, while Mercado Libre plummeted 64%. Few investors had blamed their home country regulatory watchdogs for those stock price collapses. In my view, the sharp share price correction can and should be attributed to five key factors. One, investor crowding in these stocks, which led to bubble-like valuations. Two, the failure of most companies to stop the bleeding, despite repeated assurances from those companies that profits were just around the corner.
for those companies which are already profitable, they're still not able to make enough profits to justify their lofty multiples. 3. Intensifying competition, which is beginning to worry some investors, especially for businesses with almost no entry barriers. 4. The sharp deceleration of growth in the past year or two, which has forced companies to hurriedly venture into unfamiliar countries or new business segments where they have no core competencies. For example, SEA's new foray into India and several European countries was a total disaster, and they had to shut down in less than a year's time. JD's foray into the community group business had to be significantly downsized after having lost 500 million US dollars in less than a year. 5. Cost-cutting measures, especially wage cuts that have demoralized staff. Collapsing stock prices mean that employee share option scheme, bracket ESOS, close bracket shares, which account for a significant chunk of total compensation, are worth much less now. Hence, compensation for senior management staff has declined. Must companies issue more ESOS shares and further dilute the interests of minority shareholders? Many tech companies on both sides of the Pacific Ocean are retrenching staff, which suggests that they are already experiencing weak business conditions and at the same time are preparing for weaker times ahead. Whilst it may be a little premature to jump to the conclusion that their ex-growth, lofty PE multiples should contract during this period of heightened uncertainties. If, however, growth does not pick up within a year or two, we can expect most to sell at much lower multiples. It is absurd to call most China internet companies, quote, tech, unquote, firms, when their R&D expenditure is nothing to shout about. For example, JD Tech's application for an IPO was rejected early this year because regulators saw it as a digital finance company masquerading as a tech company with just a name change. JD Tech has changed its name twice, from JD Finance and JD Digits, to capture the zeitgeist of the time. To think that a stock is cheap just because its price has declined 50% or 60% often begets more misery. Such thinking would have caused more losses if one had bought more crypto or DD or Miss Fresh or SEA or AMC Entertainment or Luckin Coffee after their prices had declined 50%, only to watch in horror as they continue to dive even deeper. The big question is whether tech stocks are experiencing a temporary correction in a Super Bowl market or simply a bubble that has burst. Across the Pacific Ocean No central bank has printed more lavishly than the US Federal Reserve. Nine trillion US dollars from 2007 of which five trillion US dollars was printed during just the two years of the pandemic in a bid to save the economy. 
Liquidity seemed to have propelled U.S. Treasuries, stocks, real estate, crypto, wages, and the CPI to levels not seen in decades. Are they now in bubble territory? I think we are finally paying the price for a lack of imagination, as well as weak discipline in turning to the printing press to tackle our economic and social problems. Inflation is now haunting many countries. Bubbles in various asset classes are bursting. Crypto, stocks, US treasuries, etc. Is recession the next devil to haunt us, especially in the developed world? Cryptocurrencies. The mother of all bubbles, conceived as an alternative to ill-disciplined fiat currencies, recent signs are proving that it probably might be the quote mother of all bubbles, unquote, in recent decades. More than two trillion US dollars have been wiped out in weeks. Supposedly designed to protect investors from fiat currency inflation and preserve value during a financial crisis, it instead did the extreme opposite. It failed in such a remarkable fashion in terms of what it was fundamentally supposed to do, with several cryptocurrencies crashing to zero. Even Sri Lanka's rupee, mired in an economic crisis with the country teetering on the edge of bankruptcy, outperformed all cryptocurrencies in recent times. Crypto lenders such as Celsius Network and BlockFi, the Three Arrows Capital Crypto Hedge Fund, and crypto exchanges or brokers or decentralized algorithmic stablecoins such as Voyager Digital, Blockchain.com, KuCoin, TerraUSD slash Luna, Vault, CoinFlex, Babel, CoinLoan, Abrise, and many more are heading for Chapter 11 protection. It is thus no wonder that my four sons had asked me from time to time for my views about their investability, bracket, read as speculative investment value, close bracket. Their friends from university and other social circles had hoped that their friend's fund manager father had a better idea about whether there would be, quote, greater fools, unquote, who will buy crypto off them at higher prices in the weeks ahead. To my horror, they told me that about a quarter of their friends, all in their early 20s, had been punting them. When pressed for their other indulgences, they mentioned Fang, BAT, bracket, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, close bracket, and meme stocks. No wonder Bitcoin at one time had risen 500,000 times since its debut. Absolute madness. Alas, I have a view. Crypto investors have lost so much in such a short period of time that confidence will take years to be restored, if it is ever going to be restored. Investors will soon sink deep into the disenchantment phase if they had not already. It is difficult to envisage a scenario in which these young punters will return with even a teensy weensy bit of their past enthusiasm. Fang and Meme Stocks 
The Nasdaq index rose from 1,293 points in March 2009 to peak at 16,507 in November last year, rising 1,200% over a period of 11 years and 8 months, the longest bull market ever. Today, with earnings catching up and a 30% market correction, the current PE multiple is 22 times. Amazon's share price, representative of the so-called FANG stocks, rose 100 times during this period and after a 40% price correction, is trading at 58 times 2021 earnings. Although earnings growth contributed to the bull market, abundant cheap capital was most likely a bigger factor as the PE multiple shot up from 13 times to 58 times. Two popular loss-making meme stocks, GameStop and AMC Entertainment, skyrocketed 100 times and 30 times respectively in six months during the pandemic. This bizarre phenomenon, speculation that is, might have been also the product of investment influences during the pandemic period. U.S. Treasuries why do investors still have confidence in U.S. Treasuries is baffling, as the real yield is still at negative 6%. What is the investment rationale for still holding them when the Fed is now no longer able to be the generous buyer? Almighty Dollar Loose monetary policy, high inflation, massive debts, trade deficits and recessionary fears would usually cause the country's currency to collapse. But the US greenback is appreciating against almost every currency in the world. Why is there an exception here? Is it because the USD is the world's only viable reserve currency? Probably. But it still does not make economic sense for the dollar to continue to stay almighty, despite lots of greenbacks being printed in recent years, high inflation and trade deficits. Not to mention other problems, especially in contrast with countries that have been maintaining fiscal and monetary discipline combating COVID. Pop, pop, pop. Bubbles seem to be popping here and there this year. Are there no attractive investment opportunities in China? Not necessarily. What is investable in China? Do not despair because the sharp correction in the last 18 months coupled with the negative narratives about China, have created pockets of mispricing. To construct a portfolio of stocks which can yield double-digit alphas seems much easier now than a year ago. Because some bubbles in segments of the stock market had already burst over the past two years, odds are low that the overall market will see another crash, a safety valve of sorts. Investor sentiment has improved to some degree, following the PBOC's switch to monetary easing. The PBOC is able to ease, as it was one of the first major central banks to have tightened from almost two years ago. China's current monetary cycle is therefore anti-cyclical to the US cycle, so China growth stocks will benefit from declining interest costs. Combined with a recently adopted fiscal stimulus plan, China is unlikely to face recessionary pressures next year, even if the developed world 
sinks into a recession. The upshot is that the macro environment may in fact improve next year. Surprisingly, some value stocks in China are incredibly cheap. Take China Mobile. Its EV to EBITDA ratio is just 1.4 times, whilst Singtel and Taiwan Mobile are valued at 13.6 times and 12 times respectively. Its cash holdings account for half of its market cap. The PE multiple X cash is just 3.6 times, and China Mobile has been paying a dividend yield of 7%. Usually, stocks with such valuations would see sharp drops in earnings, but not China Mobile, which we expect to deliver high single-digit growth for this year and next because their 5G capex is largely done. There is another group of mid-sized growth stocks where earnings are likely to see 20% to 40% Kager for three years or longer. Venus Tech, an old portfolio holding, will see a major transformation of its business after China Mobile takes a 23% stake in the company. Essentially, it will be the leading cybersecurity company of China Mobile. Besides fulfilling China Mobile's internal security needs, they will also jointly bid for data security and business security contracts. Two growth areas of China Mobile's corporate and government business. We think it is grossly undervalued at 15 times 2023 earnings for a company that will most likely achieve a 25% to 30% CAGR for the next 3 to 5 years. Jovis, a satellite and AI topography company, is another growth stock not well covered by sell site analysts. This is a relatively new business for China, and we estimate a 30% to 40% earnings CAGR for the next 3 to 5 years. The stock's valuation is undemanding at 36 times 2023 estimated PE. Beijing Baymore, one of only two companies in China making aircraft braking systems and landing gear, will continue to ride on the structural growth of aircraft, both military and commercial. Its weaker competitor makes a net profit margin of 10% versus its margin of 50%. Despite its likely assured CAGR rates of 25% to 35% for the next five years and beyond, it's only valued at 25 times 2023 estimated PE. Our current portfolio strategy is to have at least 50% of the portfolio in 6 to 10 mid-cap growth stocks, at least 20% in five to seven deep value stocks, and the remainder spread across 15 to 20 stocks of moderate valuation, which have one, interesting businesses, such as Guizhou Maotai, two, financial software businesses with a strong moat like Hansen Technology, three, strong management teams like Zhejiang Jingsheng, Four, factory automation expertise like Subcon. And five, already experienced a severe downturn like Vanke and China Tourism and so on. We believe that a fairly concentrated portfolio of 30 to 35 stocks 
might be the optimal one for alphas over the next 12 months. We will continue to avoid internet stocks. As it has become increasingly clear, many will never make a profit nor earn enough to justify their lofty valuations. Speculative or concept or meme stocks generally go through four phases. Enchantment, awakening, denial, and disenchantment. I think the current phase is between awakening and denial. More and more investors are awakening to the fact that many business models are not what they promise to be and are disappointed but still hopeful that those business models will turn around. Changing of the guard. Will the stock icons of the last bull market, such as Alibaba, JD.com, Pinduoduo, Tencent, Meituan, Netflix, Amazon, Apple, Meta, Snap, etc. continue to be tomorrow's icons? Not only will new powerful investment theses be needed, but earnings will also have to bounce back strongly. Thus far, there are no signs of either. If these stock corrections continue, what will the tech-focused fund managers who have achieved phenomenal successes on the back of the last tech bull run do in coming months? Based on my past experiences, when an investing style changes, few managers can adapt decisively to the new investing style. Therefore, an investing style change would usually bring about a, quote, changing of the guard, unquote. Investors such as Art Invest, Kathy Wood, Hillhouse's Zhang Lei, and Tiger Global's Charles Payne, quote, Chase, unquote, Coleman III, are the legends of our time. I am sure many investors, including this writer, will watch with great interest whether lessons have been learned or if the comfort of the crowd continues to beckon. Wong Kok Hoi is the founder and CIO of APS Asset Management. He has 41 years of investment experience, including CIO at City Trust Japan, Senior PM at Citibank Hong Kong, and Senior Investment Officer of GIC. He was the recipient of the Monbusho Scholarship in Japan and graduated with a Bachelor of Commerce degree from the Hitotsubashi University in 1981. Mr. Wong also completed the Investment Appraisal and Management Program at Harvard University in 1990. Mr. Wong is a CFA charter holder.